Hi there, this is Robert Green, and you're listening to Kleptocracy and Corruption Afghanistan, Episode 5, Narcotics Policy and Extremism. In today's episode, I'll be looking at United States policy regarding narcotics in Afghanistan. In other words, we'll be looking at the effect that U.S. policy in Afghanistan had on the production of narcotics, mostly focusing on opium. We're also going to look at how U.S. policy towards opium production and narcotics in general affected the population of Afghanistan as a whole. Essentially, we're going to look at the role that opium plays in Afghan society and how U.S. policy changed the role of narcotics and if it was truly effective in combating narcotics. So, let's start by analyzing the role of opium in Afghanistan. So coming into this episode, you may not know that Afghanistan is part of a region that is known as the Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent is a portion of Central Asia spanning from Afghanistan, Iran, and Pakistan that is essentially one of the best places in the world to grow crops, hence the name the Fertile Crescent. Afghanistan's fertile lands make it an optimum place to grow opium. This has led to Afghanistan being the world's largest opium producer, supplying around 95% of the European supply of opium, and around 90% of the world's illicit heroin comes originally from poppies grown in Afghanistan. The role that opium cultivation plays in Afghanistan is quite interesting. First off, opium farming provides hundreds of thousands of jobs to ordinary Afghan farmers and allows them to bring in a decent income. The interesting aspect of this is that they are often operating in territories that are controlled by the Taliban. As you'd expect, this leads to the Taliban taking the majority of the profits from the opium cultivation. But the farmers obviously continue to farm and supply the Taliban with the opium because, first of all, there's no way they could distribute it themselves as globally as the Taliban does, and secondly, it provides them with a source of income. Now that I've mentioned the Taliban, let's dive deeper into the role that opium plays for the Taliban. According to the BBC, in 2000, so one year before the US invasion of Afghanistan, Afghanistan was producing 64,000 hectares of opium, or to clarify, 64,000 hectares of land was being used to produce opium. Unsurprisingly, this provided a massive stream of revenue for the Taliban, who had only been in power for a little under a decade or so. Interestingly, though, in 2001, the Taliban banned opium production. This move towards banning opium production is an interesting one, because although the production of the drug was banned, the trafficking of it and the sale of it was not. So, when taken at face value, many people might assume that the Taliban banned the production of opium because it goes against their religion, or that they were trying to move towards being a more legitimate government, trying to get that global recognition. The analysis that I find most convincing is a more economic one, and that is the simple fact that Afghanistan, being the world's largest opium producer, is able to affect the price of the product substantially. So, by stopping the production of opium, 
they essentially lower the supply and heavily increase the price of opium worldwide. You can see the logic behind this because if their efforts were successful in manipulating the market, they would increase their revenue substantially. A report by Brookings points out something that I find super interesting because it's actually something I used to believe was true. This is the myth that if the Taliban were never ousted from power, they would have been able to curb the growth of opium in Afghanistan. What the report points out is that opium was so entrenched in Afghan society and in the economy because for most people it was their sole source of income that it would have been impossible for the Taliban or really anyone who ruled Afghanistan to root it out completely. This leads to how opium helps perpetuate widespread corruption in Afghanistan. One major way that the prevalence of narcotics helps perpetuate corruption is that it allowed local power brokers and officials who were already in power to form massive amounts of wealth through taxation, trafficking, and other distribution methods. What we see in Afghanistan is that every part of society seems to be engaged in the opium trade. For example, there are widespread reports of police, military, politicians, local warlords, and other tribal factions all being engaged in the illicit production, trafficking, and taxation of opium. I think one of the major reasons for this is that most people realize that in a country that severely lacks opportunity, this is one of the few ways that they can improve their lives. And I find that ironic to say because what may be, may be improving their life is a deadly drug for many others. This helps perpetuate corruption because through the taxation of opium, people were able to assert local control that then would later on hinder any effort at creating control that was centered around a central government. If you think about this logically, it makes complete sense from the point of view of one of the opium farmers. Someone's allegiance is going to be towards the person or the entity that is helping ensure their income, their lifestyle, and ultimately their survival. So combining the fact that Afghanistan is already a highly decentralized country with the fact that local power brokers were able to assert control and have a loyal base of opium producers, we can see how difficult it would be for anyone to try to root out the illicit opium manufacturing and trade industry. Before we get into the role that U.S. policy played in the opium industry and the success or you know, the lack thereof, of their policies, I'm going to throw out some quick fire stats just so we can understand the magnitude of just how large the opium industry is in Afghanistan. So from 2001 to 2020, we see a growth in opium cultivation from 8,000 hectares to 224,000 hectares. And notice that the 8,000 number is lower than the 2,000 number, which I said previously, because when opium production was banned by the Taliban in 2001, the, obviously the land being used was lessened substantially. 
So that's why we start from 2001, 2020 with such a smaller number. And with the peak year for opium cultivation during this time period, we see 2017 with 328,000 hectares of land being used to produce opium poppies. To put this number into perspective, that is equal to 1,266 square miles, which is about 50 square miles bigger than the entire state of Rhode Island. In line with this staggering growth, it's no surprise that the opium trade accounts for between $100 million to $400 million worth of revenue for the Taliban. And according to multiple sources, this is equivalent to around 60% of their annual revenue. Furthermore, the total market value of illicit opium pro production in Afghanistan as of 2020 is around $3 billion. Currently, opium cultivation in Afghanistan is on the rise with 22 out of 34 provinces being used to produce substantial amounts of opium. Furthermore, Afghanistan has seen a 37% growth in opium production in 2020 alone. So we can only assume that this number is going to continue to grow, especially now that the Taliban are back in control. The last stat that I'm going to provide you with will lead us perfectly into the next topic of U.S. counter-narcotics policy. This stat is that the United States spent an estimated $9 billion on counter-narcotics efforts in Afghanistan. And as we can see, they may not have been as effective as the United States would have liked them to be. So, what were the core aspects of U.S. counter-narcotics policy in Afghanistan? Well, first off, the goal of the United States was to pursue an eradication policy, which would hope to destroy the opium crops grown in Afghanistan and essentially try to drive the opium trade into the ground through force. A major flaw with the eradication policy was the lack of coordination with Afghan security forces, because remember in the early days, they still weren't created, widespread insecurity throughout the region, and the fact that eradication policy wasn't the main priority for many people in both the U.S. government and the Afghan government. Let's start with the lack of coordination. So it's important to remember that the U.S. was developing counter-narcotics policies in Afghanistan on the go. So it's not surprising that initially there was an immense lack of coordination. And this was acknowledged by the United States government in the Inspector General's special report on counter-narcotics policy. Essentially, what happened was that there wasn't any coordination between the Afghan higher-ups, the U.S. command on the ground, and the agencies that were supposed to be in charge of counter-narcotics. Instead, what we saw was improvised decision-making, and improvised policies on the ground to try to counter opium production. While this may have had short-term success, by that I mean in the moment that the agencies were acting in, it didn't provide any sort of sustainable or really substantial counter to opium production 
as we can see. The numbers regarding opium production never went down and only kept on rising throughout the U.S.'s time in Afghanistan. To give a concrete example of the lack of coordination in this process, we can look at the role of the DEA in implementing counter-narcotics practices. So the DEA, or the Drug Enforcement Agency, is a U.S. government agency that is basically char in charge of stopping the illicit drug trade at home and, in this case, abroad. When it comes to lack of coordination between the DEA, the Afghans, and the U.S. military, it's actually quite simple because the DEA, which was vastly underfunded or understaffed in Afghanistan, was not willing to operate outside of the capital because they wouldn't have any protection from the Afghans and they realized without having Afghan partners, they wouldn't be able to create any sustainable practices. Next, it's important to remember that the DEA is also a domestic agency, and they were more focused on preventing drugs from entering the United States, which it turns out didn't have a very big impact on the Afghan opium trade, because most of the United States opium does not come from Afghanistan. And then we have a lack of coordination with the U.S. military, which is going to bring us to our next point about security, and that is that although the DEA had an important mission with counter-narcotics, it was not the main mission of the U.S. military. And this is true throughout the war. Without large-scale support from the U.S. military, it was always going to be difficult for the DEA to do their job in Afghanistan. Let's move on to the next point, which is the security issues surrounding counter-narcotics policy. So, this challenge is pretty straightforward. It's the fact that any sort of counter-narcotics policy is going to be difficult to implement because of how volatile Afghanistan is in the first place. This challenge mainly relates to the fact that the main goal of the United States in Afghanistan was not countering narcotics policy, it was to dismantle the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and find those responsible for the 9-11 attacks. It's not surprising to learn that the counter-narcotics policy didn't have as much support as it needed because in order to have successful counter-narcotics, there had to be more security within Afghanistan. And the only way to achieve that was first through military operations against the hostile threats within the country. The fact that these threats never fully went away means that there was never an environment that was truly capable of handling proper and sustainable counter-narcotics policies and implementing proper counter-narcotics practices. So. Was counter-narcotics policy effective? Now that we've examined some of the United States counter-narcotic policies in Afghanistan and looked at some of the challenges that their practices faced, let's look at if counter-narcotics policy was actually effective. The short answer, and this is straight from the U.S. government, is that not one of the U.S.'s counter-narcotics policies in Afghanistan were effective enough to lead to any substantial change and left no lasting impact. 
Along with this, the challenges that I mentioned earlier, one reason why counter-narcotics policy in Afghanistan was not effective was simply because there weren't any viable alternatives provided to the Afghan people to provide them with a consistent income and the basic necessities they needed for survival. Efforts at creating alternatives were short-term and really weren't well thought out enough to be sustainable. In such a volatile atmosphere, one has to realize that people are going to try to hold on to something that is consistent and provides them with some semblance of stability. In this case, that thing was the opium trade. Now, it wouldn't be an episode of kleptocracy and corruption if we didn't talk more about how the illicit opium trade helped create an Afghan kleptocracy and helped perpetuate corruption. I briefly touched on this earlier with talking about how it created local pockets of power, but I want to delve a little bit further just briefly into this issue. So we already know that the illicit drug trade fueled corruption because it provided vast amounts of wealth to government officials and other people in places of power. But it's important to recognize that the consequence of this corruption throughout the government and the justice system. For example, one major way that corruption affected the justice system is it took an already primitive justice system and made it seem illegitimate. It made it so that people had really no faith in it whatsoever. The overall effect that this had on the government's legitimacy as a whole was incredibly detrimental to counter-narcotics policy because it undermined the legitimacy and the power of local police and security forces, and ultimately made the job of the United States more difficult because they couldn't have full and complete trust in their Afghan partners to carry out and to carry on counter-narcotics efforts when they weren't present. We directly see the effects of this in the Inspector General's report, which talks about how the capacity of Afghan security forces to combat narcotics trafficking was getting better and was steadily improving over the years, but the results were not yielding the type of numbers the United States wanted to see. This was put down to the fact that despite the increasing capacity of the Afghan security forces and the counter-narcotics units, the higher-ups in the Afghan government weren't, were intentionally hindering counter-narcotics efforts because they were profiting from the illicit drug trade themselves. So, to wrap up, to this day, Afghanistan is still the world's largest opium producer, even after the Taliban retook the country in the summer of 2021. There are no remnants of counter-narcotics efforts that were started by the United States remaining in Afghanistan, and as we know, there are no longer any counter-narcotic units present in Afghanistan that were that had their origins in the Afghan security forces because after after the defeat of the Afghan government these security forces were disbanded so ultimately over the last 20 years in Afghanistan relatively nothing was achieved in terms of counter narcotics policy and although that might sound like a very harsh evaluation it's an evaluation that is shared by the US government itself when looking at the United States government's assessment of their counter-narcotics policy, 
they also don't find any successes either. What I hope is that, although it's great that they recognize that, because it's always good to recognize when a policy didn't go as planned or didn't go very well, they need to make sure they follow up with improving that policy if they are ever in the same situation again and reevaluating their approach. And, you know, and really be able to take what they learned from this situation and apply it to other counter-narcotics policies in other regions. That being said, thank you for listening to Kleptocracy and Corruption. I hope you learned something new and can't wait for you to join me next week for a special interview episode with a former CIA analyst and Army Intelligence Officer, Dr. Paul Miller. Make sure to give the podcast a like and to follow us on your preferred streaming platform.